Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, each and every one built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If you want to improve your playing, join me and thousands of other pickers getting better every day at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Mike Marshall, and you're listening to Bluegrass Chamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. My guest on Bluegrass Jamalong this week is Mike Marshall, who I've chatted to before, but any excuse to chat to Mike again is great. And the excuse we have this time is that Into the Cauldron, the duets record he made with Chris Seeley, is 20 years old this year. And Mm. I wanted to celebrate that because it's a record I love, and I know it's a record a lot of you love. So we're going to have a chat about that. Mike, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back here, Matt. Thank you so much for uh, shining a light on this uh, thing. I'd no, almost forgotten about. It's been so long, 20 years, hard to believe. But uh, yeah, it was a very important record for me and uh, hopefully Chris too. And we had a ball doing it. So nice to revisit it. Yeah, and I'd love to chat like about the record in detail, but I'd really like to start off with just sort of where you guys were in your individual journeys at that point. Because Chris had sort of done a couple of Nickel Creek records and he'd done some of the solo stuff, like Not All Who Wander Are Lost, but this was his first sort of duet project. Um, that's that's really true, huh? Hmm. Yeah, and I'd just be curious to know sort of where you were, because the album you did with Hamilton de la Honda, did, mm-hmm. Hollanda, didn't come out until a few years after this, did it? That's right. I, I went on this journey of doing duet records with a bunch of great mandolin players, <laughs> Chris uh, of course, I'd done a lot of duets in the past with Daryl Anger, um, but then, yeah, Chris and then Hamilton, and then, of course, Katerina and I have done a few. So, um, yeah, I guess Chris was pretty early on in his career with Nickel Creek, a couple of albums into it. I mean, they were definitely uh, rock stars in their own right already. Um, and I don't, I mean, he had moved to San Francisco I'm not sure if he was actually living there, though, when we when we did this recording. I don't think he was, but um, he did he did live there for a short time, um, only a couple of years, maybe. Um, but we, um, you know, when we met, we immediately hit it off right away, of course, because we were so obsessed with the mandolin and, and particularly with a, such a wide palette of musical styles that we were both into. And, I mean, there's no question that Chris was pushing the boundaries of what uh, technically anybody thought possible on the instrument. So uh, I gravitated towards just hanging out with him, and we just bounced off each other like crazy, like two kids in a sandbox. Um, So deciding to do the record was... Uh, pretty instantaneous, and we simply went at it without any material. We actually went in the studio. The studio was my garage at home, (laughs) and just started uh, throwing ideas at each other at what might be possible while rolling tape. It was actually 
sort of one in the same. It wasn't like we rehearsed for weeks and went out and played gigs and developed this repertoire and then recorded it. We just went at it and, you know, started recording as we as we arranged. So I know that he had an interest in classical music and had just discovered Glenn Gould and playing Bach on the mandolin. And so that had always been an interest to me. We were sharing a lot of ideas about about how to play Bach on the mandolin and fingerings and things like that. We were super inspired by, by Glenn Gould's recordings of the Goldbergs. And, and uh, of course, he had been a fan of, of uh, a lot of the music I had recorded previously. You know, me being, I don't know how old Chris is right now. Are we about 20 years apart? I think so. I, I think he was born in 81. That's what's in my okay. head. So I'm in 57. So <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, I mean, Chris is just such a phenomenon. He, he's definitely a one in a generation talent uh, in any musical genre. Uh, one of the greatest to ever play this instrument. Um, almost superhuman uh, talent. Uh he will definitely be a force for the future of the American mandolin. Every young kid that has come up since him has been inspired by him. So uh, I'd like to think that, you know, he's just a continuum of stuff that Sam Bush and David Grisman started and I continued the torch with, maybe broadened it out a little bit. And and Chris took those some of those ideas and just ran with it. One of the things that catches my attention is just how uh, how creative he is. I mean, we all know he has super super duper skills and can play fast and wow us with those triplets and, and all of that stuff. But more interesting to me is how um, how creative he is with uh, just thinking musically, thinking creatively uh, outside of uh, the usual. Uh, traditions that have come before and it uh and it, so it was great to be close to that and uh work work together on something and i think that's really interesting because i think with musicians like technique is very rarely just there to be technique it's there because somebody's curious and has had some questions and gone i wonder if mm. i wonder how mm. And so the technique comes as a resolution of those quests, like finding how you do this on your instruments. Mm -hmm. um, and so somebody like Baylor on banjo or Jerry Douglas on dobro, they're similar kind of, I want to do this, mm -hmm. so I will find a place on my instrument for it. Mm -hmm. And you've done you know, lots of this over the years. Um, I've always been interested in that, like what, especially as a mandolin, uh, had not been so uh, explored as an instrument in America beyond traditional music. Um, the classical tradition had almost gotten for, had been forgotten to a degree compared to how rich that is here in Germany, for instance. And, you know, being married to Katerina and knowing all about the history of the mandolin now, I kind of learned it after meeting her <laughs> 40 years after playing the instrument. Uh, I learned what a great tradition there is for this instrument. But as an American mandolinist, you don't think of, of that tradition so much. Here we are coming out of a folk tradition and saying to ourselves, 
gee, what is possible? You know, can I play jazz on this instrument? Oh, there's Jethro Burns. Okay, yeah, sure, kind of, yeah. Uh, is it possible to play classical music on this thing? Uh, technically, what what skills will I need to, to pull off the the cross-picking section in the E major partita? <laughs> I was asking myself those questions in 1978. And so, uh, yeah, it's great to, to find a like-minded musician who also wanted to just dedicate himself to the instrument and push at the boundaries of what anybody ever thought was possible. It's, it's, it's my way of thinking about music for sure. Well, and I think with this record, so an, an album is, there's a challenge in an album of all instrumental music in holding people's attention in mm. a way that there maybe isn't when you've got vocals and lyrics. Mm. Um, but also when you've got two of the same instruments, which is not, you know, an instrument people are necessarily used to listening to at the same time. So variety becomes such a thing, and it's there in the material. You've got, you know, a super traditional tune like Fisher's Hornpipe through to Bach, through to Scrapple from the Apple, mm -hmm. through to your original tunes. Like, there's a bit of everything in there. But also the variety in terms of how you approach them instrumentally. So the, set, the, the variety of sound and text, I think texture is maybe the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. The variety of texture on that record is extraordinary for two identical well, instruments. it was something that we were very conscious of from the beginning and actually talked about. Like, how can we make each song completely different than the last one? Um, either dynamically or harmonically or rhythmically, or all, the t all the tools you have to work with as a musician. Um, yes, it's just two mandolins. Uh, okay, so that's our challenge. And we talked about it right from the beginning. Um, so, yeah, we approached it that way. Uh, not every tune has to be a fiddle tune with a, a fast fiddle tune with a lot of soloing, which is our natural background and an easy go-to for us. Um, so variety was key. Uh, of course, I have the mandocello, uh, which gave us a range and some low end. Um, but you know, when I look through the material, yeah, that's that's what that's what we were talking about. Even the, down to that last tune, um, what was it called? Uh, the the Irish ballad thing, Shamrock Shore. Yeah, let's do one with all harmonics, just to create yet another sound on the record. We'll be right back with you just after this. We'll be right back with you just after this. Collings Guitars has been a long-time supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small, and now by sponsoring Bluegrass Jam Along. Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation is something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, all one word. 
joined thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. And that's, I just, I was talking to Jared Walker about this when I spoke to him about this record and you get like, you've gone through nine tracks of huge variety and then you get Water Blast and then you get Shamrock Shore. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the, the two entirely different places you've gone just with those two after a huge amount of variety to start with. Ooh. So it's sort of, it, you know, it's relentless variety, oh. which is what keeps it such a deep listening experience. I think well, it's nice to hear. Yeah. What a blast. That was, uh, that was me. I don't know where I got that idea. The, the, the idea is that you let the DNA strings, the middle strings of the mandolin drone, and you play the outside pairs uh, are your melody and harmony. Um, and so you're strumming all four strings at once. It's the loudest a mandolin can be. <laughs> and it's got this rock and roll like vibe. Uh, yeah. And Chris uh, automatically got it and came up with uh, a way to cross-pick through those chords in a really interesting way So uh, to create another texture. And, yeah, and then to follow up with something so sweet and delicate. Yeah, contrast is the key. David Grisman used to always preach that, hey, man, something can't be loud unless it was followed by something quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how right he was, you know. And in the the sort of the digital age, the way that we record music and listen to music and mix music and master music has just created this world where everything's louder than everything else. Yeah, and it, I think that's why people crave acoustic music because you get dynamics and space. Yeah, unfortunately, even a lot of acoustic musicians are are. Uh, you know, with Pro Tools and these recording devices, we can squash the dynamics out of a record. You know, you can mix it so that it's flat and everything is mm. always being heard. It kind of bothers me a little bit when I go back and listen to some of those recordings that were made to tape and uh, had to be mixed in one day. And they're far from perfect, but God, are they ever perfect, you know, because some things are dipping into the background for a moment and other things coming forward. And, uh, that's what real music making is, is, is more like, you know, now we can control it so much that we can compress the life out of it. We have to be careful of that. Sometimes when I listen to Sirius XM, I, I kind of get the willies actually, because I don't know whether it's a product of, of the national recording studio scene or, um, or if they're actually compressing it somehow coming out as a satellite uh, that makes it sound like that. But um, it's different than putting on an LP at home. <laughs> yeah, and the range of ways we listen to music now, like, you know, we used to mix stuff on decent studio monitors mm. and hope people would listen to it on headphones or a decent hi-fi. Mm. And now stuff could be coming out of a tiny phone speaker. It could oh, be coming out of, you know, so, it's the range of situations you have to mix and compress for. Yeah, it's really a shame, isn't it? We used to be so mm. obsessed with that. I remember Tony Rice, I mean, him and his stereo, you know, he had this giant tube uh, audio system at his house and we would all just gather around and listen to these giant speakers and uh, LP of Oscar Peterson and Neil Henning Orsted, uh, and he was so into that, 
and I remember when the digital thing started, he almost just sort of drifted into the background. <laughs> no thanks, you know. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's just another world now, isn't it? Everybody has it on there. At least these headphones are sounding pretty good, though. I have those little iPod things. They don't even have cables attached to them. I'm kind of amazed how much low end they can get out of those things. Yeah, yeah, and that's well, and that's an interesting like an interesting segue there when you've got two mandolins playing a duet to talk about low end because presumably having played with Daryl Anger in a duet form before, mm. you've got two instruments with similar ranges. Right. So you've got a bit of experience in how you sort of use that to your advantage. Yeah. That's funny that you would mention that. Cause I wrote that in my notes that, uh, you know, obviously one is the first thing that catches people's attention is, is how, uh, fast and how fluid both Chris and I were at improvising, let's say. Uh, but, What's more interesting to me is is how we backed each other up and how we were super conscious of supporting the other person, uh, even though we only had um, this limited range to work with. We're conscious of the fact that there, we're missing a bass player, we're missing a, a guitar player, we're missing all that sustain. And so let's try to create that. Um, let's not just play backbeats like we would if we were in a bluegrass band. And so I think you hear a lot of that in the, if you listen to the way we're accompanying each other. Uh, and certainly that was something I had to confront for years with Daryl before coming to this record. So I think Chris automatically picked up on that. And Yeah, and the, the backup playing is... I mean, it's all it, it all is on a continuum, isn't it? Is that you are playing lead and you are playing backup, but the lead and the backup are almost interchangeable, like something like Fisher's Hornpipe, where you're yeah. both. You know, it is that um, you're at some point on this continuum at all times, right. but you're very rarely entirely at one end of it. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I, I obviously we're arranged heavily arranged all this music. You know, there's harmony, there's counterpoint. There's chords, there's stops in some sections. Uh, rarely do one or the other of us stop playing. I think we're always playing one of us. <laughs> Both of us is always playing. But, uh, yeah, you just use, you use all the parts of music making that are available. And um, sometimes full unison is great. Uh, and then to follow it with harmony and then to bring in the counterpoint the last time is, uh, is yeah, we, we, we were very conscious of that. I think, I think we, we have natural, uh, ability to understand what's going to create a balanced arrangement. And did you sort of work on a track at a time, sort of arrange it, record it, then go to another one? Yeah, that was the process. We, we learned the tune, <laughs> Uh, arranged it, recorded it, and then said, okay, now what do you want to do? Oh, I got this Brazilian thing, Desvarada. And I think Chris literally learned it that day, and we recorded it that day, which is kind of insane. It's the kind of piece somebody works on for a month or so. Most normal mandolin players. <laughs> 
It's got that real sort of showstopper quality about it, hasn't it? I remember the first time I heard it, it was a little bit like, they're very different pieces, but the first time I heard Dave Apollon play uh, Shardass. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's got that kind of, you know, it's almost like it's a set piece, isn't it? It's yeah. got that quality to it. Well, it is. Uh, although we were, we did improvise on uh, the sections at different points, but I think just the A section. But yeah, I mean, that ending with those triplets, that's uh, definitely entering into the superhuman realm of of what's possible on these instruments. Although, you know, what's funny about that is the next generation, they'll learn that when they're 15 years old, just like I learned Sam Bush solos at that age. And, and they'll take, uh, they'll, somebody will take it to another level. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty beautiful thing about music and um, uh, every once in a while, a unicorn comes along, <laughs> of which, and that's the joy of Chris is, you know. It, yeah, and it's the joy also of talking about a record like this twenty years on, because obviously it's twenty years on for you. I don't think I'd heard it as it came out. I think I maybe heard it five years later. But there's people will hear it tomorrow as a result of listening to us talk about it, mm. maybe, and people will hear it in ten years' time. And and that that thing of you make a record in a moment where you are at that time as a snapshot of who you are as a musician. And then I think it was Gabe Witcher said to me, he said, you never really know what record you're making when you make it. Oh. It's only when you look back that you, you sort of know what it was. Yeah. Oh, that's and, um, cool. That's a good point. I, I mean, I, I think you, you, you shine a light on an important point. Like everybody's entitled to their window in, I like to say, like some people come to me and say, wow, I, you know, that stuff you did with David Grisman, the hot dog record, that was awesome, you know. And I want to say, no, 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 the stuff David did before I joined the band was the real shit, you know. Because that, that's what inspired me and got, blew the top of my head off, you know. Or, or Newgrass Revival, their first record, that was my thing. But, of course, many people discovered them after Bela Fleck was in the band. So, um, you know, and... and that's hopefully will people will care will notice this stuff uh many years later and, and see it as something of value i hope so and it's that interesting thing about um listening to stuff so i might listen to this record and listen to something one of you did last year at the same time like you discover stuff out mm. of chronology as well so that's mm. why i find the that whole conversation about at the beginning about where you both were in your musical journeys, I find that really interesting because you don't need to know that to, to enjoy a record. But when you slot it into the timeline as well, mm -hmm. it often just opens up another perspective. And yeah, I think you, you have a, you have a, a period for, you know, I had been playing jazz and bebop uh, quite a lot, having hung out with Daryl Langer and the Turtle Island string quartet and the, in the late seventies when they were exploring, uh, playing jazz on string instruments. So I, I had some knowledge of that. I, I think when you look at a tune like Scrapple from the Apple or, or a crab feathers that, that you could argue that that was Chris, one of Chris's first, uh, forays into really exploring what he thought his voice as a, through jazz changes, you know? <laughs> uh, hmm. and, and then, the, also the Bach, you know, I think it was the first time he recorded any Bach. Um, I had been into Shoro music 
pretty deeply at that point. I think you have to help me with the timeline. I think I had already recorded Brazil duets. Yeah. And uh, maybe even my Choro group had a record out. Um, so I think what was most fascinating about this was how quickly we could have an idea, either one of us, and the other person do the idea. Um, and so it was really easy for us to sift through arrangement ideas and try them out and then record them right away. Uh, whereas with some musicians, you would have to really work on something for, for a long time. With somebody like Chris, you just say, hey, can you harmonize that? It's like, uh, yeah, give me a second. Yeah, okay, I'm good. <laughs> and that's literally it. Uh, or... Gee, let's maybe you got an idea for a, a counterpoint. Can you just like do a descending line that runs down the, from the top of your mandolin down to the bottom while I'm playing this? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, th that's a real luxury, you know, to have to be working with a musician like that. Um, and there are like there are some tracks on here that are very much sort of led by an idea but not confined by, like exactly you say, that idea is able to be exclusive. So obviously Shamrock Shaw with the harmonics, mm -hmm. what a blast with the sort of the outer string things. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, which track am I thinking of? There's something else the as well. There is, or... Yeah. Um, I was thinking of that, but I was also thinking of, is it Scrapple from the Apple that starts with you playing alternate oh, notes yeah, on the melody? alternate notes on the melody. I mean, that's an insane difficult thing to do right but you did it and it but it doesn't it's not a party trick it's <laughs> and it's so silly because i listened to it with headphones on and i almost couldn't tell if we were really doing that but of course live it's really effective and and uh i remember that that was tricky for both of us i have to admit <laughs> and what a crazy idea you know i mean that's the kind of stuff that was so fun with chris it's that you could you could have an idea like that and just uh, give it a moment and it would come up, come together. Or the ending where it goes into da 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 That's kind of a John Coltrane move um, harmonically. Um, and then, oh, let's harmonize that. Okay. Um, and then let's record it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Th that was the swiftness with which uh, working with Chris was, was possible. Uh, it's really fun, really easy. And it's interesting you mentioned Stranded in Kodiak because that's one of the tracks I was going to single out to have a chat about because there's so much, so much going on in that track. Do you know the um, story behind it? So I, I heard you mention it was to do with Chris being stranded sort of post 9-11. Yeah. I don't think I know more than that. Yeah, the, it had just happened and uh, all flights were down for those four days or whatever it was. So, uh, or maybe longer. So I think that, you know, he very well, uh, you know, tapped into those feelings, especially during his solo uh, Anger, confusion, um, what the hell, you know, fear. It's it's all kind of coming out, especially at the end there where he just has that repeated note when he's soloing. And me 
I'm just trying to hold it down. You know, I like to be a bass player. I love to, I love to feel like when somebody's soloing, they really feel comfort and they feel like I'm completely supporting them. Um, I like to think I was able to provide that for him while he's really expressing something pretty deep and, and scary. So, and it's an, in, an interesting space because not that you would accuse Chris in any of his vocal music of, of kind of not letting his emotions out. He's mm. explored loads of stuff in his songs, but there's something about instrumental music where you can express all sorts of emotions with, and only you need to know what they are. Mm-hmm. Like you can be, they can be less defined in a way. Yeah, that's true. Um, and there's, there's something beautiful about that, I think. Yeah. And maybe I'm reading stuff into it. Um, but, you know, certainly as we started playing this music live, it, he went even further in some of the live shows. Uh, but, yeah, that is interesting about uh, instrumental music. It, everyone can take into it and, and can read into it what you want. It doesn't have the, oh, baby, oh, baby, you broke my heart. Uh, <laughs> so in that way, it can go to more places. It's not limited by that. Um you might hear something and think, well, that's just funny or that's just, uh, that's very deep and meaningful and sad. Uh, and another person might read something completely different to it. Yeah. And it's a, that track, you talk about that held note at, at the end. And there's so much, like one of the things I love about music or any kind of creative performance really is at its best, it's about, like organizing energy mm. and how you mm. how you build something, how you take a line and make it not straight mm-hmm. and take somebody on a journey, whether it's up and down, side to side, mm. even if you drop somebody off back at the same place they started, but they've just <laughs> seen something they hadn't before. And that's such a perfect track for that. It just has such a, it's such a trip to go on that's, as a listener. That's nice to hear. And that's, again, getting back to Chris's creativity. I mean, he was... He was hearing something there. And what, what I like about it is that I'm play, just playing bass notes. And the chord structure is a little bit nebulous. You know, it's not really clear. Is it major or minor? And is this note I'm playing in the bass, is that the tonic or is that the third of the chord? So it has this kind of feeling of, of instability in it, uh, which is also rather nice. At the same time, it's got a very simple melody. So, yeah, that's that one really stood out as something really unique for, for this kind of music. Um, when I think of soloing and, and the two of us, how we were kind of pushing at each other, Without being competitive, you know, we were we were definitely inspired. And if one of us did something really hot, the other one wanted to follow it with something great. But there's always this feeling of support. And um, even with all of that going on, there's always a feeling of complete joy when one or the other of us does something phenomenal. And uh, like I said, getting back to the accompanying always a feeling of complete support coming from the other person. Uh, no matter if you feel like, God, 
I wish I could do that. <laughs> what he's playing right now. Um, very interesting. Great relationship in that way with Chris. And it's something like, you know, I don't, I almost listening to the record, I almost feel like I can hear you listening to each other. Well, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, and then whether the lead follows the rhythm, the rhythm follows the lead, who it is suggests a particular direction you go in, the other one follows. Like it's, you know, it just sounds like such a. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of deep listening for sure. And on a microscopic level and on a, also on a bigger uh, trajectory of where a certain solo is going. Uh, a, a real sense of the company was hearing that and following that dynamic or what have you. Also, one of the things we we tried to not do, <laughs> which is not atypical of, uh, which is atypical of these kind of jamming records, uh, when a soloist starts doing something rhythmically and the rhythm player starts copying that, that can be great if if it generates more energy, but it can also be a wet blanket uh, depending on the situation where you might want that rhythmic counterpoint. Um, so it's not something Chris and I ever really talked about, but I felt like we've, we've found a, a balance for that. Uh, especially in a duet setting, it's, it's real easy to get caught up in whatever somebody's saying you want to say it to. You know, hmm. uh, instead of laying back and letting that soloist say it. <laughs> um, one of the things that um, you definitely get from listening to Chris's music, and I think I'm, I presume I've heard him say this at some point. I must have done, but he like he likes a bit of friction hmm. in music, hmm. and it's exactly as you say. I guess if one of you just follows the other one everywhere they go, you lose that bit of tension that exists between not doing the same thing and That's tension right. and releasing music is one of the most beautiful things in music. Yeah. I think that was something that, uh, I think that it maintained the kind of listenability to the record that I think both of us were trying to be real conscious of, even though we were pushing ourselves instrumentally beyond what any of us had ever done up to that point. Uh, we were still very conscious of, hearing the music as an outsider might. <laughs> uh, and the sound of the record, there's something about the sound of that record as well. You've got two, apart from the Mandocello tracks, you've got two potentially fairly small sounding instruments that don't tend to sustain. Like a mandolin as a way of creating a sound, it's a pretty mm -hmm. inefficient thing. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so part of it is obviously you both playing beautiful instruments with great tone and you both have great tone as players, but there's also um, an element that is added to that by the way you chose to add the reverb. Yeah. Are you aware of how we did it in the team? Yeah. I've heard you talk about that. Yeah. It's, we, uh, we recorded in a very dead room, you know, just facing each other knee to knee basically. Uh, and so I took the tapes after I edited it together and went into a church with some really nice speakers and put Chris into one speaker and me into the other and just played that in that hall and captured that air, you know, so much nicer than digital reverb, you know, it's just, and the two speakers blend together into the room and it creates this time delay that is more natural to the, 
to the way it would be if we were playing in that church. Um, so that, that was really, I done it also with the record I did with Daryl Anger, a live record called, uh, oh gosh, At Home and on the Range. Yeah, in that same church, the Berkeley uh, Unitarian Church there right by the campus. Great big room. I think we had two mics about 10 feet away and another two mics 60 feet away or something. Um, recorded on ADATs. You remember mm. those? <laughs> yeah. Pre-program. But it's I, like I'd always, from the first time I heard Into the Cauldron, the sound of that reverb was always something that struck my ear. Mm. But I only found out, I think, about two weeks ago mm. that that's how you've done it. And it just reminded me... Um, something I'd read about how Norman Petty had recorded Buddy Holly. Mm. And so he, he was basically after the same thing. And he had, when he moved his studio to Clovis, his, I think it was his dad's house next door or something. And they used the A-frame attic section of mm. that house mm. with a speaker in a big wooden box at one end. <laughs> hundred feet away was a microphone. Mm. And they sort of put, Buddy Holly's family worked in the tiling business. So they put all these ceramic tiles in there. Oh God. Some bits of, pipe tile to break up because the curves broke the kind of okay. sound pans and they would put this they'd pump the sound out of the speaker oh capture God. it in the mic and feed it back into the board next door so when you listen to peggy sue that's the sound of the next door attic fantastic. doing the reverb fantastic and um, i love that well in the old days the big studios had had real reverb chambers they were basically mm. brick cell blocks in the basement with a mic at one end and a speaker at the other and that was your reverb. <laughs> uh, it sounds like it was much more sophisticated than that. But, yeah, that's air, man. And that's that's uh, something digital doesn't do that. You know, it does something else. You can control it a lot more. Uh, but I think there's something magical about that, Get ca ca copying a room. And you say it was recorded in, in your garage, like, which was presumably treated to be pretty dead. Were you just sitting opposite each other with a couple of mics on you? Yeah, each? I think I was trying to remember if we, we either had two KMs on each of us, KM84, the original KM84s, not the 184, because uh, I, I had four of them. But I also love the Coles mic. I might have been one KM and one Coles on, on each of us. Uh, no other mics, definitely two mics on each. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the track sheets. Maybe I wrote it down somewhere. But yeah, that was it. Real straight ahead and uh, to ADAT, which was, uh, you know, pretty good quality. It's all digital. Would have been nice to have been on tape, but uh, this way we were able to keep lots of outtakes. I wish everyone could hear all the outtakes with all the solos because and it would be hilarious to see the music develop listening to the three hours. You know, we've recorded each tune for about three hours. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a box there and a half. Oh my God. <laughs> Piles of stuff laying around in my, in my cellar somewhere. <laughs> And then all the recordings of the live shows you did together yeah. as well. Because I, I read somewhere that you recorded all those too. Yeah, they're all there. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever go the route David Grisman has been going where he's putting out everything. <laughs> but who knows? Somebody just discovered this uh, 
recording with Tony Rice, Todd Phillips, and Daryl and I uh, playing at the Old Town School of Folk Music. So I, I put that one out. I was so surprised how good it sounded. It was just a board tape, but it was spectacular. Mm-hmm. The guy who was the engineer at that in those days kept every show and uh, ended up donating it to uh, uh, is this guy Jan Johansson, great lover of bluegrass, has it all. So he's been going through it. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, it, it sort of speaks a little bit to your point earlier about um, like perfection in recording not necessarily being the most important thing. So there's things out there like the... I've just been talking about Clarence White with people for the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. And um, that Live in Sweden record that was just a fan recording in the room, like that's a document that is so loved by people. You know, I recently went back and listened to a bunch of him too after hearing your uh, interview with David Greer and the guys. And uh, I didn't. I don't think I got to that Sweden record. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to dig in. Is it recorded really well? Well, it's recorded, so you hear Clarence really loudly because whoever was there mm-hmm. was obviously there to record Clarence. Um, but it's just you hear like some, it, it, a little gig in a fairly small club that happened 50 years ago and somebody wanted to record it. And so now we have this, and I, yeah. I love it. I think it's a great sound. It's a it's a really cool band and a, you can hear them all like musically moving around each other in the most beautiful way. Yeah, well, you know, as, as artists, we, we often have the sound in our head and we record something and it doesn't come out exactly like we were thinking it would, but it's real easy to forget that what did come out was actually great. <laughs> and so, shut up on your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's art, isn't it? It's it's the best version of the thing you can try and get. To like, I don't know who said it, but the idea that mm-hmm. you know art is never completed; you just eventually choose to abandon it. Yeah, that's it. And you know, you get it in as good shape as you can before you abandon it, and that's what the thing is. Say it wasn't as good as we could do. It was as good as we could afford. <laughs> and maybe by stopping, you actually kept from ruining it. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked to um, Noam Pakelny about the Mighty Poplar record earlier in the year, and he said that they had it recorded, and they'd done some rough mixes, and then they spent about two years mi- re- like mixing it, and just. And he oh. said we could have just put it out, put it out the next day, oh, and it would have sounded great. Oh, you, you get to a certain point where because they had to delay it coming out because they couldn't get together to tour it. Oh. They had the, lu- the luxury of going back to it. They kept fussing, huh? Yeah, said because you know you just get to a point where you think well, we've got this time, we should use it. Okay, and, well maybe they tweaked out a few things. I, hey, I understand. I completely understand. It never feels done. It always feels like just one more little thing could make a little bit better. Well, especially yeah. I'm recording all this box stuff these days on the Mando Cello, and uh, that's that's a very deep well. It does not ever end. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. We sort of circles back to what we talked about at the beginning, really, about um, where you both were in your journeys and. And like that, and you were saying about some of this being Chris's first real exploration into playing through jazz changes and playing Bach, and like even the idea that if the two of you sat in the same room with the same two instruments today and recorded these eleven tracks, they'd sound totally different. Well, gee, that's a really interesting idea. I wonder where we would go with this material. Yeah, it would be totally different, and in that way, it's a, it's. I'm really lucky that I grabbed it when when we were at this. Super exciting time 
together as buddies, you know, uh, you know, me sharing all the things I knew as the elder statesman and his endless enthusiasm, which has not seemed to diminish (laughs) a bit in all these years. Uh, and just just blasting off, just bouncing off each other in that way. But at the same time, we come from exactly the same background. I think that was also part of what made the rhythmic thing blend so well. Is that, uh, you know, especially having done things with like Hamilton de Holanda, who comes from a very different tradition, or working with Katerina, you know, you have really different uh, feelings for even the simple idea of how you play a group of 16th notes in a row. Uh, with Chris and I, it was just like complete meld from the first notes. You know, we, we felt the, the groove the same way. Um, so that, that, that really brought things together. Um, what do you think of the title and the, and the cover? I was talking to Jared about that. Jared was like, you know, I first heard this and I had the CD and I like even the trench coats that were on the cover was really cool. And like, you, you know, and all of the, you know, it's, it's hard to know with a record like that, what to put on the cover, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I'm a lover of food and especially living in the Bay area, uh, all these grocery stores are just so phenomenal. And boy, do I miss them now that I'm in Germany in the winter. <laughs> And so I, I was a, a, a total food and wine guy. And and I, I think I dragged Chris into a lot of that. He was young, you know. And so also, I mean, to me, it had a whole, it has a couple of different meanings. On one level, it, it's like you're, th- you're making the soup with all these different ingredients. So the CD is like a cauldron of soup, um, you know, vegetables and fruits and everything is going in there. At the same time, you know, it, it was kind of a, I, I could say it now, you know, Chris grew up very Christian. And so this was in some way his stepping out into the bad realm. Of, and we were like witches. <laughs> Maybe I was the witch <laughs> dragging him down the road of doom uh, <laughs> into, you know, some of the first uh, real nice wine drinking and cheese eating and uh, appreciation for the good life in a way that maybe he didn't grow up with. So I, uh, I, I love the title in that, in that regard. It's probably just me. Well, there's, but there is also um, like as an outsider who's not seeing that context, but the idea of, just a cauldron as a like a like you say a melting pot and a place mm-hmm. where stuff but also this the idea of there being a bit of witchcraft in there and yeah. it is i am i've talked to so many incredible musicians through this podcast and i fully intellectually understand the idea that we're all on the same journey mm-hmm. it's just some of it down the road mm-hmm. and i know that intellectually brian sutton is where he is because he's put in the work day in day out for years and years mm-hmm. and years but there are moments of listening to into the cauldron where you are just going like i don't know that that's not humanly possible that's witchcraft and so it's sort of there's a there's a little bit of like magic to it as well well i mean t- tony rice said that you know you start asking guys about their pick and what kind of strings you use and wow that rhythmic syncopation you do is so cool and you know tony would sometimes just 
boil it down and say, you know what? There's some stuff in music that is unexplainable. It's just magic. And I think that's why we love music, you know, because, I mean, there were things with playing with Chris Live. I mean, there were things that happened on stage in the middle of songs. It was just like, this is weird. I mean, this is transcending everything we practice. This is transcending everything we thought we could do or ever even wanted to do at this moment, right here, right now. That what just happened right there is what is going on. Whether it was, you know, sometimes we would start uh, a second set with just free improvisation. Of course, that was the, those those kind of things. Almost inevitably, you go to that place if you're if you're really in the right headspace for it. But it would happen in the middle of somebody's solo tune in an already arranged tune. Um, and and uh, I just believe in it. I mean, I think that's what music is for, is trying to get to that place. Um, so, uh, yeah, there you cannot quantify all of it. it it's there's some stuff. I mean, whether somebody can do a row of triplets for, you know, six bars instead of three, well, that's cool, and that blows your mind, and you go, oh, my God, oh, my God, and he landed on the downbeat. Okay, but that's like juggling nine pins and not dropping one. This other stuff is more intriguing to me. Why is it that when Clarence White anticipates that downbeat, the top of your head comes off? Now, you can try anticipating it, but it, it ain't going to have the same effect, right? Every time, or just, yeah, and it's like that—that that moment in Scrapple from the Apple where you're alternating notes. You could do a whole piece of that, and it could be remarkably technically impressive. Mm-hmm. But you use it as a jumping-off point to then dive into something mm-hmm. deeper, mm-hmm. and it's that those are the moments. And I think it's Julian Large sort of talks about about all the work you put in is essentially constructing a parachute. So when you hurl yourself off the cliff, you think you're probably going to be okay. That's a good way to think of it. That's a really good way to think of it. Yeah. And then, and then you just become confident hurling yourself off the musical cliffs because you'll be all right. Yeah. I was talking to my students about that online, too, about, like, especially improvising through a set of more interesting chord changes that you don't always play through. You know, when it goes to A-flat, like, why is it that all of us mandolin players have this one or maybe two areas on the fingerboard where we can survive? Uh, how do we break out of that? You know, and I have a whole series of things that deal with that. You know, that like you should be comfortable playing an A flat scale starting with your second finger on the sixth fret of a D string, uh, even though it feels like a whole tone scale up there. It's it's an area where you might end up one day because of what you did just before it. And you shouldn't feel lost at that moment. You should be able to continue the melodic train of thought that you were on. Um, so that's probably what Julian's talking about. Like, I'll be okay if it goes to A flat, even if I'm up here in this weird zone on the instrument. Yeah. And that's, 
you know, that's one of the joys of, I think, the many joys of this record is just hearing two people, like you were saying, who can take the ideas and follow wherever the other one goes. You can go with them. There's no kind of, you better go there on your own because I can't go. Yeah, no, that's true. I'll tell you what, though, there was some stuff that was a real challenge for both of us. Like those chord changes on, uh, what's the tune? The really weird tune, something quite trifling. <sighs> those are some wicked changes to blow through, man. I mean, hmm. it kicked both our asses, you know. Um, and sometimes I feel like we were just practicing doing something like that. Yeah. And we would just trade, you know, and to do a lot of work to get to where we could work our way through those chords and and still survive them. I don't know why. Like, I, it's like A flat to D7. It shouldn't be that weird or I don't know. I forget what they even were, but sometimes a half step away is really far. <laughs> Because it throws yeah, your yeah. fingers into the, uh, the, the scramble. Well, we're so used to thinking of these sort of cycle of fifths, you know, mm. down a fifth, or, you know, mm. fourth or whatever, and it's it's an easy way of thinking, isn't it? But it's yeah. very easy to get lost. Oh. And it's, I mean, it's just all of that is what makes this record as vital to listen to now as it was when I first heard it. And it's, you know, it's a it's a joyous listen, and I've. I think part it's a bit weird going through things looking for anniversaries as excuse to talk about things, but it's as an arbitrary, a useful way as I can think of. And um, it's just it's so cool to get to talk about this record well, you, after listening to it for fifteen years or whatever. I really appreciate it. Thank you for uh, shining a light back on it and bringing it back to my attention. I'm glad. I'm glad some of these young mandolin pickers appreciate it, and hopefully they'll take it as a jumping off point. And not as a final goal, and uh, take take it to the next level beyond where this can go. There's a lot of them out there who I'm sure could do it. Yeah, totally. And it's you know, it's you, it's like a, a sort of great musical relay race, isn't it? Is you take the baton from whoever's had it before, and you hope you carry it a bit further yeah. to give to somebody else. And yeah. So it continues. Right on, or at least walk it in a different direction. <laughs> cool that's great mike i hope we got something feels like we do loads of good stuff in there all right yeah thank you Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.